You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary South. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission by seeing the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the matured multiplied for the glory of Jesus Christ. Connect with us online at redemptioncalgarysouth.com. It's good to gather, guys. Grab your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, we've got lots in the back. Ushers would love to bring you one, so just slide your hand up if you need a Bible. It is good to be worshiping here back in 1 Timothy uh, with you here this morning. My name is Quentin. I'm the, the pastor here at Redemption Calgary South. If you're new with us, would love to meet you after as well. But first, uh, Timothy, and we're still in, we're going to close out chapter 5 here this morning. Uh, as we've been studying this book, studying the master plan uh, for a healthy church, uh, we've already studied the qualifications for elders uh, in chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. Uh, We've already examined the commitments of an elder or a pastor in chapter 4, verses 11 to 15, and now today we come to the final section of eldership, or that's focused on eldership in this book, Uh, and it's focused on how we are to relate to the elders. Now, up to now, Paul has mainly focused on who an elder is and what an elder does, Uh, He now closes out chapter 5 by turning the focus really upon the congregation and the congregation's responsibility towards their eldership. And as a healthy church uh, is a church with biblical eldership, a healthy church must also approach their elders in a biblical way. To which we begin this morning by asking ourselves the questions, how are we as a church to relate and respond to the men that God has placed in leadership over our church? What are our obligations as a congregation towards them? How do we support them as a church? And also, what happens when we run into an issue with an elder, a problem with an elder, a sin issue with an elder? And then what does that process look like to deal with that? And then also with that, what does the process look like in selecting uh, an elder, selecting the right elders for the church? And then the ultimate question is, why is this all so important? Well, friends, just because you have an eldership in place doesn't mean that your church is going to be healthy. No, you have to have the right eldership, a biblical eldership, the right eldership, the right leaders according to God's master plan. And as an eldership is biblically responsible to lead the church, so the church is also responsible to relate to those elders. As we witnessed in in Ephesus already in in this book, there was trouble. There was trouble in the church. There was false teaching in the church. There was issues going on. And those issues can ultimately all be traced back to an unhealthy leadership. And so as we look at that and we apply that to ourselves as well, what are we going to do about it? What is the church to do? What are our obligations as a church when it comes to maintaining a healthy eldership? So 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 to 25. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. 
Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you today as your people. We come in the blood of Jesus Christ. We come filled by your Spirit. And we come to seek what you have revealed to us and to your church today uh, through your book, through your words, that your Spirit wrote through Paul to Timothy to the church in Ephesus. And as we seek to apply this, uh, we seek your wisdom. We seek your guidance. God, we want to be a healthy church. Uh, we want to be a church that, that knows what it means to, to function and to operate according to your good plan. And we want to do this ultimately for your glory and for your fame. But we ask that by your spirit you would reveal to us what you have for us today by your word. Help us to understand it and to apply it. And that it would also pr produce greater worship in us towards you, the worship that you receive. As we have been singing this morning, you are worthy of all of our praise. We seek your face today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so getting to the text, we see double honor. We see oxes and we see muzzles. We see labor and we see wages. We see two or three witnesses. We see standing in fear. We see do not be hasty. Use a little wine. What's that about? Conspicuous sins and good works. There's a lot going on here in this text when it comes to how we are to deal with elders. And it seems to kind of go all over the place. Paul just seems to be throwing out a bunch of punchy instructions here. But what we're going to see as, as it all boils down, that there are three very clear, indispensable instructions for how the church is to approach their God-given leadership through eldership. And the first instruction comes from verses 17 to 18, which is calling us to honor our elders. In fact, the text says we are to show double honor. Now, I'm pretty sure most of us have an understanding of showing honor and respect towards our leaders. We get that, but double honor, what, what's going on there, right? Isn't regular honor enough? What's the deal with this double honor? Well, when it comes to honoring an elder, especially elders who, as the text says, labor in preaching and teaching and who rule well, the text is saying that we are to show them double honor. Paul calls the church not only to show honor through our general respect of his role, but also very practically when it comes to his support. So if you want to know how to honor an elder, instruction number one calls us to respect his role and to reward his labor. Verse 17, we'll go back there and have a look. It says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And I hope the first thing that you notice in the text here is that the term elders is being used to speak of spiritual leadership of the church. 
And that even more importantly, that it's, that it's in the plural form. As, as Paul already spoke about right, the qualifications of overseers in chapter 3, here we see in chapter 5, he's, he's speaking about the same office. He's speaking about the overseers, but he uses the term elders instead, pres, presbuteros. This is where we get the word Presbyterian from. In fact, in the plural form, it's presbuteroi, and it means elder, but elders in the plural form, more than one. And why I say that this is so important is because in Scripture, what we see throughout the New Testament is that the term elder, when used for church leadership, is always presented in the plural form. And that means that spiritual leadership that God has designed uh, is always meant to be a shared plurality, meaning that the leadership of the church is never meant to be carried by one person alone. As you examine the, the birth of the church in Acts, and as you study the missionary journeys of Paul in the book of Acts, and then the letters that were written as well, as those churches were planted, what we see over and over again is that church eldership is always a plurality. In fact, leadership that operates in a singularity is not only disobeying what has been modeled and commanded by Scripture, but it's also just extremely dangerous. It's not a good place to be. No, friends, leadership must be shared. That's why Paul calls us to honor the pastor, or, or calls us not to honor the pastor or elder in the singular. No, he says right here, let the elders in the plural form who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. The elders. Now, some of you may think, well, Pastor Quentin, wouldn't we as a church be violating this scripture right now? Because aren't you the only elder? I mean, you're the only elder that we ever see, right? And I'll say yes and no. No, I'm, I'm, I'm the only elder that you normally see, right? There, but, but there is, in fact, a plurality of eldership overseeing our church. There is a plurality of biblically qualified men who help me lead our local church. Although it's, it's not the same as a full-blown local eldership yet, and trust me, we're working on that. Uh, it's still a plurality of biblically uh, qualified men who help me to manage and to, to oversee the church to make decisions who, as the text says here, are to be ruling or governing over the church. Now, as we're a very young church, meaning that we've only been planted for three uh, years, as church planting goes and, and as instructed in the New Testament, local elders are to be appointed. And uh, just for your prayers, to inform your prayers, we're working on that. And Lord willing, we will appoint some local elders in, in, in a short time here so that we can operate as a true local plurality of elders working together to lead and protect and to feed, to shepherd, to care for the flock of God known as Redemption Church Calgary South. Now, with that said and established, please note here that as much as God's word through the New Testament will call us to honor and respect and submit to the leadership in the church, we see that throughout the New Testament, within a plurality of elders, Paul is specifically calling the church here 
to show double honor to certain elders. What do we mean by certain? Well, double honor. Let's start with that first. What does that mean? Does that mean that if, uh, if I buy an ice cream cone for one of my elders, I, I give him a single scoop, but the other elder, he gets a double scoop? No, that's not what it means. Well, as, as we just studied about honoring widows last week, when we, the, the whole topic of honoring widows had financial connotations to it, right? Finance, financial support for her provision. And this is the same terminology being used here for honoring certain elders in the church. That not only do certain elders deserve your general honor and respect, but according to Paul here, they also deserve your support. They deserve your provision. They deserve compensation. Double honor, which we're really boiling down to uh, the general respect and the reward for certain elders. Now, now, which elders is Paul talking about? Well, Paul goes on here to define that. Who is deserving of double honor? He qualifies them. He says um, in verse 17 that it is those elders who rule well or lead well, manage well, govern well, to which he then further qualifies by stating, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Those elders who are fully dedicated to both lead the flock and feed the flock by laboring and working hard at preaching and teaching. Brothers and sisters, as all elders and overseers are to be respected and honored, and as all elders are qualified by, as we've already seen, being able to teach in 1 Timothy 3.2, the reality is, is that although all elders are qualified by an ability to rightly handle the word of God, not all elders stand in the pulpit week in and week out and preach the word of God. Not all elders elder full-time. Not every elder devotes the majority of his time and his effort and his life laboring and leading and caring and feeding the flock. No, when Paul is talking about double honor here, he's, he's talking about those elders within the plurality of elders who devote the majority of their time to eldering. Devote the majority of their time to overseeing, to leading, to teaching, to preaching. This is their full-time devotion. This is the calling upon their life. Not that these elders are special or super elders, not at all. But for the fact that they spend the majority of their time and their energy eldering. You see, as elders are overseers, are pastors... Uh, all one in the same, uh, within an eldership, even though all are responsible equally in authority to oversee the church, there are always some who may be stronger in certain areas of leading and some who are weaker in other areas, right? Some who may be stronger in heralding the word of God and gifted in, in the preaching and the teaching of the word. And some elders who are more of a behind-the-scenes kind of an elder, there are some elders who work secular jobs, right? Uh, who elder the church in their expendable time, while some devote their entire workday uh, to leading and feeding and caring for the flock of God. You see, although a plurality speaks of shared leadership, shared authority, there are certain elders who devote more time and energy in their role as an elder. These are the men that Paul is referring to here. 
And they are to be both respected generally, but rewarded particularly, compensated. Because why? Because they, they labor, meaning that they expend and exhaust themselves, especially, as he says, when it comes to preaching and teaching. Friends, the word labor being used here, uh, it comes from an agricultural terminology. That, that an elder who labors at teaching and preaching is like a farmer who labors on his farm. right? Not in the sense of a, a farmer driving like a GPS kind of controlled combine, but in the sense of a farmer at the end of a plow, right? A sense of hard, sweat of the brow, rigorous work. You know, when, when I grew up, my pastor's name was uh, Pastor Holloway. And the running joke for him uh, was that uh, some people would call him Pastor Holiday, right? That, that pastors have got an easy job. That the life of a pastor is one big holiday, right? Which, friends, is the furthest thing from the truth. Brothers and sisters, I, I worked in construction growing up. I also spent 16 years in the oil patch. I know a little bit about hard work. But i got to tell you, the hardest work that I have ever done in my life is laboring at both preparing and preaching the Word of God and shepherding the flock of God. I never would have believed sitting in the pew that that was the case, but now that I sit at my desk and stand in front of you week by week, that the life of a preacher, the life of a pastor is a plow. It is, it is hard work. You're plowing into God's word. And as I, I stand behind the pulpit Sunday to Sunday, I'm preaching for the harvest of souls. I understand what Paul is saying here. It is labor. It is exhausting. Just ask my wife. She's the one that sees my exhaustion some days. Now, I'm not trying to seek your pity at all or elevate myself or anything just want to be transparent before you that, that yes, the, the life of a pastor, the role of a pastor is an absolute joy, but it is an exhausting joy. It's labor. It's hard work. And Paul further explains why the pastor, why the preaching elder deserves his wages. Verse 18, he confirms this from Scripture. He says in verse 18, for the Scripture says which he is quoting from Deuteronomy 25.4, the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And then remarkably from Luke's gospel in, in chapter 10, verse 17, he, he quotes Jesus who says, the laborer deserves his wages. Both Old Testament and the New Testament verify here. So as an ox would have to, to work hard at turning that millstone you would also give the ox a little bit of that grain as he works, right? The work of a lowly animal, Paul is saying, the scriptures are saying, is, is worthy to receive some of that grain. Again, this is a picture of, of toil and reward. And then as Paul quotes the words of Christ in Luke, he, he, as, as Jesus is preparing to send out the 72 disciples to go and preach and teach the kingdom of God, as Jesus instructed them to take no money with them, to take no knapsack, to take no provisions, that they were to entrust themselves to the people, 
to care for their needs, that the, the laborer deserves his wages. As they labor hard, the Lord will provide for their needs through his people. And friends, I've got to say, it's, it's, it's one of the strangest things to stand before you and preach something like this. It's not the most comfortable thing. And I, and, and I say that, but as we believe in God's word and we want to go verse by verse, I'm not going to jump over this in, in its uncomfortableness, right? When I'm thinking about a laborer deserving his wages, I immediately run to what I do deserve. I deserve nothing. What I deserve is, is ultimate and eternal hell for the, for the sin that I have committed against the Lord. That's, what, that's how I feel when I, when I see this. I don't d- deserve this. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. What Paul is talking about is, is uh, us as a congregation and how we are to be a part of the health of our eldership, a part of the health of our leadership, and how we are to promote the health of the church by supporting the work of the church. And that how by your financial giving to the church, you are providing the means for those who rule well, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And to be clear, friends, when you, when you worship the Lord through your finances, when you give obediently and generously to the work of God here at Redemption, part of that giving goes to honoring those who preach and teach. And so as the elders set my salary, my my salary and the salary of any future pastor elder uh, here that would fall under these guidelines here, it's going to come out of that giving. This is the biblical precedence that we have. Now to be clear, you never give money to me directly. You never give money to any elder or pastor directly. Absolutely not. That would be an unhealthy thing. No, friends, you give to the church and the church in turn compensates the pastor, the elder, according to that agreed salary. Nothing more, nothing less. And to be even further clear with you as well, I, I, I never know and I never will know how much any individual gives here at this church. That again would be so unhealthy. Right? Your giving is between you and the Lord. We wouldn't want to turn a healthy instruction into an unhealthy practice. But as we think about this, the question of application that really should arise uh, in our hearts when it comes to to supporting is, is, does my giving, along with obedience and faithfulness and generosity, as the scriptures would instruct, does my giving also consider those who are worthy of double honor? Does it, does it, Does it consider those who we are to respect and reward? Does your faithfulness to give consider the care for those who are diligently devoted to caring for the church? As hard as uncomfortable as that is for me to preach and teach, this is the word of God, and by the Spirit we pray that he would use this and apply this to our hearts in how we give and how we support and how we show double honor. So now, as, as honoring is very much on the positive side of things, the next topic here in the text is quite a contrast, right? He goes from honoring an elder to disciplining an elder. So friends, as a church honors its elders, a healthy church honors its elders, a healthy church at times may also have to discipline an elder. As Timothy was faced with the task 
of church restoration. Right? There was false teachers. There was, there was false elders in the church. And they have derailed the direction of the church. And Timothy was sent in to, to turn this thing around. The church needed to be instructed as to their obligation of what to do when, when an elder is in sin. When an elder is in unrepentant sin. And so, friends, the second point is, is, is when it comes to disciplining elders... What we see here is Scripture calls us to prove the evidence and publicize the sin. Prove the evidence and publicize the sin. Verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules, rules without prejudging doing nothing from partiality. So friends, as, as elders are called to be above reproach, we, are, we were studying that, right? The truth is that elders aren't perfect. Now, although they are qualified through a perceived biblical character, an elder can really mess up. An elder can, can be put in the position of elder when they shouldn't have been put in that position. We're going to touch on that in the next session, next section here. But the truth is that an elder can go sideways. An elder can, can sin even to the point of being disqualified from ministry. Therefore, an elder, is, is not, an elder who is not above reproach means that he is also not above church discipline, right? No, in fact, when, when, when I was an elder in our church in the north, we had to deal with this very thing ourselves. We had an elder who was confronted about sin in his life, persistent, blatant sin that, that ultimately had to be disciplined. And friends, it wasn't an easy thing to do. It was an extremely hard thing to do, but it was the right thing to do because as we see in the text, we're instructed to do so. And as Paul instructs Timothy here, what we see is that there is a process for how we are to do this. There's a process for how we are to confront an elder. It's a proper process, specifically given for uh, either the protection of innocent elders and for the discipline of unrepentant elders. And so verse 19 begins by stating that Timothy is not to admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So what we see here is the first piece of the process, which is an initial layer of protection for the elder. You see, friends, an elder, a pastor, is, is in a highly visible public position. And as much as some elders can be guilty of a chargeable offense, so too innocent elders can be the target of false accusations and false allegations. The word for charge here is translated as accusation in the New American Standard Bible. As elders and pastors can be wrongfully targeted by a disgruntled or a mischievous person, this, this first layer of protection is given as a defense to such false charges, to such false accusations. Now, although this process sounds a lot like the traditional four-step church discipline text 
right? Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. Notice that when it comes to confronting an elder, Matthew's first step is skipped over here. And the second step is implemented first. As Matthew 18, 15 says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. When it comes to elders, the process starts by taking the evidence or two or three witnesses. Verse 16, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. You see the connection uh, between these two texts. So the absence of the first step is initially given because of the the vulnerable position of an elder uh, for the simple fact that he is more of a target for accusations and allegations than anybody else in the church. That if an individual comes along with some kind of a flippant false claim without further proof, his charge against that elder doesn't have a witness weight to it that's required when entertaining charges against an elder. Friends, pastors and elders are targets. Satan loves to target pastors. Right? As Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, the pastor is a higher point target. You see, you take down the pastor through some kind of false accusation, the body of Christ is harmed. The testimony of the church is scarred. And Satan loves to use people's misplaced grievances or those who have unfounded issues within the leadership in order to try to take down the leadership, in order to tear down the church. We're bigger targets. That's why Paul jumps the first general step in favor of the second step. That there is a necessity of witness weight to legitimize the proof that is necessary for the credibility of the charge. Now for, for wisdom's sake, as much as this protection layer is biblical and good, there are those who have abused it. Leadership teams who abuse this protection to protect their pastors from anything and everything. For example, as many of you know the story of our old church planting fellowship that we belonged to at one time when we started, you know that there was unrepentant, disqualifying sin in the life and the character of the main leader within our fellowship. And this ongoing unrepentant sin perpetuated the breakdown of our fellowship of 150 plus churches. And as this pastor was confronted by by others, Because of the persistence of his sin and his unrepentance and his denial, one of the issues that were discovered along the way that contributed to these problems was that this layer of protection was being abused. That even though many people came forward, like two or three witnesses, we're talking a lot more than that, many people come forward with similar accusations against this man, including many pastors within our fellowship as they they confronted this issue the leadership that was around him would not hear them out for the purpose of protecting their pastor to a fault. That's not what Paul intends here. This layer of protection is not meant to insulate an elder from all charges. It's merely put in place to initiate the need for more evidence because of the vulnerability of the position. 
As I was reading um, Dr. Kent Hughes' commentary on this text, he tells of a story where this layer of protection was needed and was necessary and was such a blessing in his life as a pastor. He tells the story of a, a new woman who became uh, coming to his church. She began attending the church, uh, who they found out later was just released from a mental institution. Uh, the woman, uh, she, looked, she looked troubled in her dress and in her mannerism, but, but out of love, the church welcomed her in as they should. But as this woman began to hang around the church, she started to do some pretty bizarre things. Uh, she began to stalk the pastor's home at all hours of the night. And then she began telling the people in the church that Pastor Hughes was in love with her and was going to leave his wife and to marry her. And what was so concerning was that some people in the church actually believed it. They were entertaining a singular allegation from a mentally ill woman. It was a false allegation that begged for more proof, right? It all turned out to be absolutely false. Friends, an allegation that if listened to, uh, to give it credibility without more evidence has drastic consequences for the church. As an elder leads the church, their position is visible, which makes them vulnerable. The truth is that sometimes innocent pastors do get targeted and therefore protection is good. But again, that doesn't mean hands off the pastor. That doesn't mean he's untouchable. That, that, that doesn't mean that, that we say like some of the sayings that go around, don't touch the anointed. I've heard of that before. Obviously not. No, all it does is beg for more evidence. It begs for more credibility and more witnesses before the charge is taken seriously. And then, friends, if the charge is true, if it's proven to be true, if the allegations are correct and accurate, if there is persistent, ongoing, unrepentant sin in that elder, the truth comes to the light. Others testify. And when they do, and when the charges are found out to be true, and like I said, when the pastor does not repent or follow through, what we see next is rebuke. We see the follow-through of discipline. And quite importantly, the discipline is public. It goes before the church. Paul says, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest will stand in fear. Right? God takes sin seriously in the church. And he takes it even more seriously when it comes to elders. That elders and pastors are held to a higher account as their position is visible and influential, all the more does their discipline need to be made public to the church. Non-disclosure agreements have no place in Christ's church. When the sin is proven and unrepentance is revealed, it needs to be revealed and exposed to the church, not hidden. As some churches try to protect their, their reputation or even as they think that they're protecting their flock or shielding their flock, sometimes they try to cover up this kind of a sin, or they tell some other kind of a story. If you've ever been a part of a church where one day a pastor just puts in his two weeks' notice without any credible explanation, or, or suddenly leaves town because he's called to another ministry, and then the church is never told about some hidden moral failure. This is, this is so wrong. This is unbiblical. This is not what God instructs. 
In fact, what's wrong with the whole secretive thing is that not only does it leave your people in a mist of confusion, but it short-circuits the whole intention of the discipline in the first place. Right? As discipline is an act of love. Friends, church discipline is ultimately an act of love. The purpose of discipline is, yes, to expose the sin. Church discipline is an act of love. Right? For that pastor, for that sinning man, but it's also for love for the people, right? Paul says, so that the people stand in fear, right? It's for the purity of the church. It's for the purpose of, of bringing that guilty person to repentance, right? The purpose of exposing the sin to the church is to be transparent, to bring the whole weight of the whole congregation, of the whole body to bear on the matter because God is serious about sin, it's an act of love. We see that in Paul's statement here as well. It's serious. 1 Timothy 5.21 In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. He says keep these rules. Right? This is not something that we have the freedom to take lightly or to cover up. No, Paul says all of heaven is watching. We don't sweep these serious issues under the rug and just hope that nobody sees. God and his angels see it all. We're charged to follow through with God's plan for discipline of an elder. To expose that unrepentant sin. To bring it to the light. Ephesians 5.11 Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. We are to keep these rules as all of heaven is watching. And we're also to keep them carefully. He says, keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Right? We're not allowed in this kind of a process to run quickly to judgment. Right? No prejudging. But we're also not allowed to reject the evidence. Proverbs 18, 17. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. No prejudging, Paul says. But with other, we also need to be impartial. Right? If this unrepentant elder is my best friend, my good buddy, I'm accountable to the Lord first, and I must follow through. And if the truth does come out, proving his guilt, again, by two or three witnesses, and if he doesn't repent or confess the issue, it's all the more right to rebuke them in the presence of the whole church so that the rest stand in fear. That they will be confronted with a healthy fear, knowing that sin is to be taken seriously before God. Right? And this is a healthy fear. A healthy fear that Proverbs 9 says is what? It's the beginning of wisdom, right? It's a healthy fear that 2 Corinthians 7.1 says works to cleanse us and produces holiness within us, Right? Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God, a healthy fear of God. Friends, an unhealthy fear of the Lord will drive you away from the Lord. A healthy fear of the Lord will draw you near enough to be transformed by him. It's my prayer for this church as we establish elders, as we grow, 
as we mature and, and as we persevere for many years to come, is that it would never come to this. That we would never have to prove the evidence and publicize the sin of an elder. That we'd never have to discipline an elder. But if it is, if it is the case, we've got the biblical framework, right? All under the, the realm of the, the health of the church. Right? As Timothy faced the monumental task of turning a church around from false teaching and turning them towards right doctrine, this process was inevitable for him. The false leaders needed to be removed. The church needed to recapture the holiness of God, the right fear of God because of the seriousness of sin before God. Now as tough as all of that is, one would hope that through the proper biblical selection of elders, that we would never have to go here, that we would never have these problems, which give, brings us to the third point of the text of how to select an elder. And the instruction is, is that we are to call cautiously and choose wisely. Verse 22, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Verse 23, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Verse 24, the sin of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are cannot remain hidden. Friends, the wisest approach when choosing elders is to go slow. To go slow when you're tempted to go fast. Paul says here, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Don't panic. Don't freak out. Don't be in such a hurry that you put the wrong guys in place that you have to discipline later. The Lord has men that he has chosen. And cautious patience is your best friend. Cautious patience is on your side. As I have many church planting friends who have gone before me, a common refrain or a note of caution from their experience is to pump the brakes. I've heard many a story of church plants that installed elders in the first year that did not turn out so well. No, friends, it's better to struggle through not having local elders in the beginning than to be hasty. That yes, we want and we need and we desire local biblical eldership. And friends, I'm excited more than any of you for that to happen soon. But the process needs to be to go slow. That's been our process in the last three years. In fact, a year ago or so, I thought we had some men who would fit the bill. But in the end, it proved otherwise. It just kind of solved itself all, all on its own. Not that there were any blatant sin issues, but they just weren't the men that God was calling to lead our church. And so I'm thankful we didn't panic. We didn't hit the gas. No, friends, going cautiously and choosing wisely is the right approach because eldership is a big deal. We want the right men. Again, we, we want the right men. We don't want perfect men. But we want godly men. We want men who are above reproach. And this comes through proactive patience as we wait, as we pursue, as we examine, right? So as Timothy had to be selective and careful and to go slow himself, he also had to watch himself as well. Paul reminds him here to keep himself pure. 
right? To take no part in the sins of others. And then in verse 23, which seems strangely to stand in this text here, Paul, Paul is showing fatherly care for Timothy here, right? As Timothy may have been tempted uh, to follow uh, some of the false teaching at that time, at that time there was some ascetic teaching, uh, legalisms that were going on. He may have been tempted to, to follow some of this, this, this abstaining from food, which would have applied to alcohol as well. And out of concern for, for Timothy's health, Paul, as his spiritual father, instructs Timothy to use a little wine medicinally, right? That his purity would not be in question if he was using wine to help his stomach ailment. So it kind of stands out of place, but just, 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 just think of Paul's heart there for Timothy. And then he closes by confirming that time and observation are on Timothy's side. That time and observation will reveal the right men for the task. Verse 24, he says, The sins of people are conspicuous, meaning that they are apparent, that they can be readily seen, right? going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later, right? Later has the, that, that sense of time, right? That time is helpful in this matter. Verse 25, so also good works are conspicuous, apparent, right? Even those that are, or, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So time and, and observation on the front end will help to avoid the harder issues on the back end. And so we call cautiously. We choose wisely. And so for your prayers in our church, uh, we're, we're praying that the Lord is going to raise up those right men to lead the church. And as I pursue them and, and as we take the time of examination, we trust the Lord is going to provide that well for us. Now, why does this all matter? Why should this matter to you? Well, friends, it all comes, to down, comes down to what's at stake. As the church is to be a light on a hill, as the church is to be salt and light to a dying, lost world, as we are all called to be ambassadors of Christ, as we are the caretakers of the greatest life-saving message the world needs to hear, how we honor or dishonor one another speaks volumes. How we respond in purity and love for both the leadership of the church and each other, is a reflection of Jesus himself. How we represent Jesus, friends, is a massive deal. How we walk in the light of Christ, who came to save sinners, is going to reverberate the veracity of what we proclaim. As each one of us has a responsibility and an obligation in the church towards our leaders, our collective health as the church will either testify to the eternal healing power of Jesus Christ or it's going to share a fallen, marred, scarred message that's not going to save anybody. As Jesus came to lead us, to lead us towards forgiveness through his blood, as we follow him as the church, we need to remember that the world is watching. And oh, how the world is watching when pastors fall. 
And what a scar on the church. What a scar on the name of Jesus that is. How we, how we witness to the world through our lives together speaks volumes. And our prayer is that as the volume is turned up in this church, as the Lord continues to build his church, that nothing would pour out of this church but honor towards Christ by how we honor each other, by the purity that we share with one another, by the devotion we have for one another. And so as we're studying through 1 Timothy, as we're getting close to the end, we're seeing that there is a plan. That although this text and other texts sometimes seem a little bit obscure, we can apply them deeply and they're ready for us. It's a design. It's meant for us to follow and to put in place as the Lord Jesus builds his church. And our prayer is that the message of Christ would be heralded throughout the world, that it would be a resounding gospel song that Jesus Christ is King, that Jesus Christ is Savior, that he transforms the chiefest of sinners, of, of which I am and of which, which you are, and that Jesus Christ is worthy to be worshipped. We sung of that this morning. He is worthy that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word again. We thank you that you give us clear instructions. You don't leave us in the dark. You've given us the way. You've given us each other. And as we grow individually and collectively uh, into your likeness, uh, we just pray for your hand upon this church. We pray for your will to be done among us. We pray for your spirit to be working powerfully within us. We pray for your word to be working deeply on our hearts, to be transforming us into the image of your Son. And as we deal with each other, as we exist together, we know that it's not going to be perfect, but there is a plan. And that if we stick to the plan, by your Spirit, by your Word, we aim to be healthy. We want to be a healthy church that proclaims your glory, that loves Jesus, and sends that message to a lost and dying world. We pray this in Jesus' name name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Follow us on social media to stay up to date on current events and information from Redemption Church, Calgary South. And don't forget, you are loved.